0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Modern Retail Podcast. I'm Cale Guthrie-Weissman, the Editor-in-Chief here at Modern Retail. And if you've been listening for the last few weeks, you've been listening to my wonderful colleague, Gabriella Barco, who's been talking about and interviewing people about the supply chain. Um, And this week, we're inviting a few other Modern Retail folks here to talk about everything else that's happened. So I'm really excited to have sort of a a big squad here. We have staff writers, Miley McCann and Sakib Shaw. And we have managing editor Anna Hensel. And we're just going to sort of talk about the last year, what we've written about, what's important, and then how that might give us a view into what we're what we expect to see in the year to come. I think I'm just going to go like right down the line and just sort of go go between people and ask about sort of what's on their mind and what they've written about. I have a few different things written here, but I think we'll have a good time doing that. But Miley, why don't we begin with you? How are you, Miley?
1: Doing well. How are you?
0: There was one thing that you've written about a little bit, and that I find super fascinating. I wanted you to go just sort of into the the nuts and bolts of your coverage and what you're thinking about. But I feel like fast fashion has had a moment this year. Is that do you do you agree with me there?
1: Definitely, I think I like to call it super fast fast fashion in particular.
0: So, what makes it super fast?
1: Yeah. So I think it's the rise of maybe a subset of 10 brands. And I think, you know, the most notable being Shein. And there are these players who are online only and really mobile focused. And I think they release a lot more SKUs than even the traditional fast fashion players, which was already quite fast. So I think one story that I wrote, I've written maybe an upwards of five stories on these players, but- um, one that I wrote included this interesting stat that Topshop released maybe 500 SKUs a day at one point, and um, Shein was releasing 2,000 a day. So just kind of really upping that scale of production of products.
0: So for those who don't know, what exactly is Shein? I feel like like my my 16-year-old niece definitely knows who she what Shein is, but I feel like some people might not. So how would you describe it?
1: Yeah, so Shein got... Really big over the course of these past two years. And I think they were a little bit under the radar for maybe anyone older than 20, um, for <laughs> the past, uh, 10 or so. Uh, they, they are a player who, like I said, online only, they only have a few brick and mortar pop-ups. But other than that, they're really focused on this online, uh, site and, a mobile app where they have a bunch of different styles kind of of the moment, and they have a really large Gen Z audience that kind of grew across social media, both organically and through paid influencer programs.
0: That's so fascinating. So uh, when you're launching thousands of SKUs a day, where is that all coming from? So what are the sort of the back-end dynamics of all of this?
1: Yeah, so I know for Shein in particular, they um, operate across almost – every factory in China. Uh, one of our former colleagues, Michael, sent me this interesting article kind of looking at their back-end supply chain. Some of it is a bit opaque. Uh, Xi'an is traditionally media-shy, and I have yet to have an interview with them. All of the stories and coverage that I've done have been kind of workarounds from that. Um, so I don't know a 100% everything that they do in the back end or even in some of the front end stuff, because they are so kind of secretive about a lot of their um processes.
0: So you you mentioned their media strategy is sort of like just explosion, just like sort of an explosive everywhere on, on social media. Would you would you say that that's correct?
1: Definitely. I, I I think, you know, when they got they started growing, I think, pretty significantly alongside the pandemic and at first, I think a lot of that was kind of this paid influencer strategy where they were tapping micro-influencers across both TikTok and Instagram. And I think as they've matured, they've gotten more money to also invest um in paid. And I think there's been a lot of organic traction as kind of these influencers would post things, influence others on social media who would then post their own outfit pics completely unsponsored. So it was kind of this tumbling effect of, organic and paid on TikTok and Instagram specifically.
0: So my question is, do you think there's, it it seems if they're predicated so much on paid media and just sort of being in front of people, do you think there's going to be a fallout if they stop paying for it? I feel like a lot of online brands sort of pay for exposure and then the moment they try to Make things equilibrate? It doesn't quite work. Do you think that there's a fear of that happening, or do you think they've sort of already reached a uh, a certain momentum and they're now they're now in everyone's mind share and, and they're they're here for for the time being,
1: yeah. I mean, I think it's interesting again, they are a little bit opaque about their different strategies, and I know they have a bunch of different tiers of how they do influencers. So, some of it is just paying in product, which uh, kind of for reference, their products run anywhere between 5 and $20. So it's not always kind of the highest end stuff. And I'm sure it costs even less for them to create. So I'd imagine that model is a little bit less expensive. I know sometimes they pay them in flat fees. So I think, you know, next year will be really interesting for them because as they've grown so rapidly, I think... That is definitely a question on my mind. I'm not really sure where it will net out. I do think they have started to reach a point where they have passed kind of the Gen Z um, ethos only into kind of a broader recognition. But yeah, I'm not sure. (laughs) It could go either way. I think
0: so. That's super fascinating. I want to talk about next year, but I also want to talk about what's going to like how are the competitors responding because it seems like they are aimed squarely at Topshop, H and M, Zara, all of which. You know, are very ubiquitous, but are, are, have pretty bumpy businesses. I guess you could say like they're 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 everywhere, but like you know, it's been difficult with brick and mortar falling out, all of that. So, have you seen them responding? Do you think that they are going to begin doing more direct response to the super fast fashion uh, in the year to come? What what do you think are the, are the dynamics?
1: Yeah, so I mean, I think it's interesting. Um, I did write a story kind of my initial foray into this was looking at Shein. Um this year they actually surpassed Amazon as the most downloaded app on the app store. And then I kind of expanded from there looking at how that might affect competition and maybe if there were other players like Shein. And I you know, I think they really do prose excuse me, pose a threat to um these older players. I think it is somewhat of a different model. I They are online only and they don't have the brick and mortar presence that these traditional players in fast fashion have. But I think we're seeing traditional players like H&M, like Zara, focus more on their mobile app. That was really what drove a lot of success for um, Shein and Co earlier this year and kind of, I think, really appeals to the Gen Z mindset. You can kind of switch over from TikTok into the Shein app very easily. So I think seeing the investments that a lot of traditional players have done in their digital infrastructure and mobile apps specifically, I think, is one way that they're really trying to combat that. But I do think they have that benefit of brick and mortar that some of these online players don't.
0: Absolutely. Well, that leads to another topic, and I'm actually going to bring someone else on, which is Sakib. Sack, you've written a bit about live streaming, which I feel like is something that a lot of influencers, specifically for digital-only apparel brands, have done. So, why don't you just give a little bit of background about what you've what you've written about in terms of the live live streaming these days?
2: Yeah, so I think like purely in terms of adoption, I think this year's been a big one for live stream shopping. Um, I think um, you have like some of the biggest retailers um, and the biggest tech platforms embracing the format. Um, We've seen um, big social media and video platforms like Facebook, YouTube, and TikTok um, run shoppable live streams with companies like um, Walmart, Sephora, Macy's. So um, we're seeing way more activity this year. Um, and what what they're basically doing is they're kind of combining the talent that they have on those platforms. Um with those brands, so they they're pairing them together. So, you recently, um, YouTube, for instance, um, did a, a shopping event, a live stream shopping event, where it had one one of its YouTubers that was featured on it was Mr. Beast, who has um, you know almost eighty five million subscribers, um, and you know, and, and they talk about you know in my conversations that I've I've had with these companies, they talk a lot about you know the the power of you know the audiences that these creators drive. Um, and how they can make live stream shopping just more entertaining.
0: I feel like live streaming has been talked about for years. It's huge, like in Asia. And I think it's a different sort of, there's a different mentality. I feel like uh, people overseas, compared to the United States, uh, there isn't as much of a pause between watching something like on your phone and then clicking buy as there has been here traditionally. Do you think now that's actually changing, or do you think there's just a bunch of tech platforms that are sort of throwing it in front of people and hoping it changes?
2: Yeah, I think I think I think it, that's what we're seeing at the moment. I think it's everyone will tell you that it's really early days here in the West. Um, you know, Amazon has been doing this since twenty nineteen. Um so I I mean it's still not necessarily true some people have been doing this for a little bit um and before you know this year was really the year that like the bigger tech platforms like Facebook YouTube and TikTok got involved but before they they kind of were there there, there was this huge void that a bunch of startups filled so um companies like Network which specializes in streetwear and 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 kind of collectibles and limited edition art um and network, for instance, they say they, they do these shopping festivals, right? So they'll do these like every month or every now and then. Um, and they say that they on average generate upwards of $2 million in sales during these kind of like, you know, two day events. Um, so there's, there's, there's certainly like pockets of engagement. And we've heard a lot from kind of individual brands like, you know, Heinz did like a Halloween live stream and it said, you know, it got um, 270,000 views. I mean, but that includes live and on demand after it concluded. So we're seeing pockets of engagement, but we're not seeing the kind of, you know, gross merchandise sales that we're seeing out of like China where, you know, a, an, an event on, you know, an Alibaba's Taobao live streaming um, app will generate, you know, tens of billions of dollars. Um, we're not getting that, but again, as these platforms will say, it's really early days. The, the, the market, you know, so the startups and even the bigger tech platforms are saying this could take three to five years to really evolve and reach that kind of mainstream status.
0: With a company like Network, it's it seems that streetwear and quote unquote drops, like if they have a, a Nike Air that's with some collaborator that there are only a few thousand that makes, that makes sense to me intuitively that like that would, that I, if I were someone who loves sneakers, I would go on network and I would buy that. But then you're also, you mentioned Heinz. So like, what is Heinz doing and how does that fit? Like, d- does that mean that they're like live streaming their ketchup and they're like, buy it here now. Like, how does that work? Yeah. So I
2: think they've tried to do the same kind of, they've tried to tap into that kind of scarcity as well. So that what they offered during their live streams was like Halloween costumes um and you know that with their um packaged with their ketchup. So it, it wasn't something necessarily that you could just buy off the shelf. You know, it was still kind of limited to that event. So I think that's what everyone is really is trying to tap into. And I mean, I was speaking to YouTube the other day and they were saying things like sneakers um and collectibles, like trading cards, they're really the kind of hottest areas right now for livestream shopping.
0: All right, Miley, I want to bring it back to you because there's another trend that you've written about that I'm just personally obsessed with, which is everyone is pivoting to the outdoors. And that sounds like such a, like, line, like, capital P, capital O for pivot outdoors. Anyway, but, like, uh, I feel like... Every few weeks I get a news press release from a company that is either announcing an outdoor line and that could be apparel, it could be furniture, it could be something else. So just give me sort of a a rundown of what you've seen and what you've written about because I think it's an interesting sort of sign of the times I guess.
1: Yeah. No, I think we first got on this when you actually pitched in an editorial meeting to us. <laughs> you you kept saying the phrase, everything is an outdoors brand. We need to cover that. And I, I mean, I really agreed with you. And I think, like you said, we're seeing it across categories. If you were a traditional furniture brand, you're selling patio furniture. If you were an athletic apparel company, you're starting to sell technical outdoors wear. And I think I think this year in particular, we're really seeing brands kind of cascade into the outdoor space. You know, it grew big in 2020, but I think it was too early for brands to kind of come up with their response. But 2021, we've seen the rollout of either in-house products or partnerships or uh, new category expansions to kind of tap into something that grew randomly very large during the pandemic as a lot of stuff changed and we were forced to kind of adapt our behavior due to stay-at-home orders.
0: So do you think this is a long-standing trend? One of the trends that, that we've written about a lot is, and you just mentioned it right now, but it's Everyone's been focusing on the home. People have been working at home. People have been staying at home. Like home you know, home improvement sales have gone up, all of that jazz. The outdoors is a little bit different because it's not, you know, people might say they want to go camping and then they go camping once. They're like, I don't want to go camping again. Um. So, but it seems that there are a lot of money and a lot of sort of lines of products are being funneled into this category. So do you think that this is sort of a shift in what's going on and how people are interacting? Do you think that it's a new a new trend? Or what do you think is going on in the long term?
1: Yeah, no, that's definitely something I've been covering a lot of different categories that grew big due to the pandemic, and then kind of what will that look like for the future. And I think, you know, the outdoors in my mind has a little bit more staying power than something like crafting, which you're already kind of starting to see some of sales in that space go down after that initial pandemic boom. I think... You know, because so many brands are accessing it from different ways, I think there's something maybe for every consumer, um, a bit of a cliche, but I, I think maybe true. I, you know, you're seeing water bottle brands create water bottles that are made out of more technical, um, materials that kind of keep drinks colder for longer, could be used for camping, but are also just kind of being adopted as something stylish in their own right. So I think, you know, as that mind shift changes to, The aesthetic of outdoors, whether or not you actually need some of that technical stuff, I think, you know, creates a base of consumers that's maybe a little bit broader than someone who's actually going camping all the time and maybe just wants the products because they're trendy and in and, you know, seeing that in fashion and hydration and food, you know, I think that might last a little bit longer.
0: We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. I want to bring up Anna because uh, Anna's been writing about a certain thing that I also find fascinating, but I find all things in retail fascinating. But um, can you talk a little about the rise of the DTC holding company? Because for for reference, if you don't subscribe, Anna writes our weekly uh, DTC briefing talking about all things digital startups. And I feel like this is a topic that you've been sort of going back to a lot of late. So what's going on here?
3: Yeah. So this is a it's actually a trend that I feel like I first started writing about a couple years ago, but it's really picked up steam this year. So, a holding company, it is, you know, a company that which that holds multiple brands. Um, so kind of the classic examples people think of are a and g or Unilever. So, a couple years ago there was a lot of talk about how a lot of these startups that started as single product brands that sold completely online would eventually acquire or pivot to this holding company model because customer acquisition costs were so high. Uh, And just when you're a company that holds multiple brands, you can consolidate various costs. Um, So you can kind of use your power of scale to maybe negotiate better with manufacturers to get better prices. So a couple of years ago, there was a lot of talk about how holding companies are the way you're going to see a lot of these direct-to-consumer startups either form holding companies or get acquired by holding companies. And that didn't really come to fruition. But what I saw this year was over the past couple of years as well, there's been a lot of interest in Amazon holding companies, Thrasio being the most prominent example. Uh, these companies have raised hundreds of millions of dollars in venture capital funding. So I think inspired by the su- success of that, you saw more startups launch or pivot this year to do the holding company model, but for Shopify. So a few examples there is a new company called Open Store. It just launched this year um, and it's reached a $750 million valuation in eight months. And they go out and acquire Shopify brands, uh, but they have come up with their own algorithms, which they claim will help them identify you know, the right businesses to acquire. And they claim they can acquire a company in a matter of weeks. Uh, you also have the razor brand Harry's, which after their acquisition by Edgewell fell through, uh, they pivoted also to a holding company model. They raised $155 million at the beginning of this year to go out and acquire brands. Uh, and this past week, they announced that they acquired Lumi, a deodorant startup. Uh, so I've seen you know, this year, more companies pivot to that model and raise significant amounts of venture capital. So I think you'll continue to see more acquisitions, more interest in the holding company space in the year to come.
0: So um, I'm going to ask you this, and then I'm going to ask Sack this because uh covers Amazon. But do you think this model has staying power? Or is this just a way to get a lot of venture capital? Like what do you think there's going to be a fallout soon because of this?
3: I think it does have staying power. But I think it has staying power when you have brands that make sense together, right? So uh, And I will say I've talked to OpenStore, and they are acquiring all sorts of brands, whereas you have other holding companies. uh, Pattern Brands is another example of a company that pivoted to a holding company model this year. They say that they are focusing only on brands in the home goods space. Harry's is focusing on personal care. But of course, because a lot of these companies are raising significant amounts of venture capital uh, having a lot of money allows you to kind of pay b- over some mistakes. So I think you'll also see some of these holding companies get by for a while because they have a ton of money in their reserves. They have a lot of scale. Uh, but then at a certain point when they're not profitable, no one else will give them more money. That's when you might just start to see some of them implode.
0: Got it. All right. Sakib, you've been writing a little bit about the Amazon side of things. So we've seen like Thrasio, they've raised... Hundreds of millions of dollars. What, like, what's going on here on the Amazon side?
2: Yeah, I mean, on the Amazon side, you mentioned the um, funding part. I think last year it was somewhere in the region of twelve billion dollars um, that these companies raised, um, and and you know they're they're popping up in more places. There's the US ones and 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 in and in Europe as well. Um, and yeah, I think these the the bigger ones. Um, you know, some have been around for you know over a decade. Like a company like Goja has been around for for 13 odd years, um, and Thrasio, you know, that, that's that been around for a couple of years, but they've already, you know, amassed about 200 brands in that short span of time. Um, and I think what they're doing now is they're, they're looking more kind of, they're, they're, their main focus is Amazon um, and acquiring brands internationally as well on, on Amazon. So they've, they've acquired brands on, on, um, from Amazon Japan, um, and they're trying to bring those brands to the U.S., um, you know the success, the successful ones, or or even just you know one of their successful products. Um, they'll then bring that to Amazon.com, or take a brand from you know here in um, in well in the U.S. and take take that back to Japan. Um, again, they look obviously they they have like a ton of data. Um, they have all this capital that they use to kind of boost those brands as well, using um, Amazon advertising. Um, and yeah, and they've, they've really, they're starting to focus a bit more on kind of internet, internationalization, as they call it, of those brands as well. And, they, and I think that it's a sign of, of those companies maturing a bit. Um, and as they target like newer markets, I mean, that there were reports that, um, Thrasio, for instance, was going to um, launch in India as well, which obviously is a massive,
0: um, e-commerce market. I'm glad you brought up maturation, and Anna, I want to speak to you specifically about this because I feel like this has been the year of online companies, DC companies going public. So, just give us a little bit of the the table setting. What's happened of late?
3: Yeah, so there's data that's shown that this year there's just a record number of companies in general going public. So it makes sense that you also have a record number of direct-to-consumer startups going public. Now, how people define direct-to-consumer might vary, but you have a lot of the what I consider to be the most notable names in the direct-to-consumer space that went public this year. So you had Warby Parker uh, do a direct listing. You had Allbirds go public. You had Bark, which sells dog toys, go public via a special purpose acquisition corp. Um, I think that what, why all of these startups are going public now is just uh, particularly over the past two years, there's just a lot of money to go around. And I think that these startups have seen other startups have what they look at as successful public debuts and think, hey, why don't we do that? Uh, Now, what you have seen happen this year, I think, is a lot of, you know, I think most companies, when they go public, they have a pop on the first day of their IPO and the stock price immediately goes up and that's great. But the question is, how long will that last? Uh, At what point will especially a lot of these companies are still unprofitable. So for how long will wall street continue to reward them when there's no clear path to profitability, kind of the uh, caution sign that I guess is the backdrop to all of this is this year. You also had Casper, which was one of the first direct to consumer startups in this modern kind of class of brands. We think of, they went public about two years ago and they, were actually acquired and taken private again because their stock price dropped so low and there was no clear path to profitability for them. So I think it's a real interesting dynamic here. You have a lot of startups rushing to go public because they see it's done well for other brands in the short term, but in the long term, there's still a lot of questions about how they'll do on the public markets.
0: Two years ago, you and I were writing about DTC companies. And I remember we talked a lot about like sort of the revenue wall and the difficulty to scale. And it was always like you're gonna, if you're a a young to medium, you know, medium-aged company, you're growing a lot, but then it's really difficult to hit sort of that like vertical, like we're gonna sell a lot. And we all we we wrote a lot, we looked towards Casper as like this is probably one of the few options that companies can take to actually begin to really hit fever pitch when it comes to their growing their businesses. Do you think that? Now that we're seeing we're seeing Casper's fallout but we're also seeing a bunch of other companies go public. Do you think companies are going to take note of that? Do you think this is just going to be sort of a a cycle sort of sinusoidal in terms of, you know, companies raise a lot of money, you know, either go public and then a few years later have difficulty. Like what what do you think is the long-term prospects of what's going on here?
3: Yeah, I think there's a few different scenarios here. I think that One, there are some startups out there where it's among the ones that just went public where there are a lot of expenses beyond just customer acquisition costs, I think, to put it simply. And just there are so many different areas where they're kind of draining money that it's very hard to see how they will become profitable in the near term. Uh, There are some other companies that I think have been able to kind of cut down, especially on customer acquisition costs by opening a lot of stores. I think that Warby Parker is the most prominent example. Uh, and that's an example of a company, I believe in, I might get the year wrong, but in 2019, they didn't make money, but they didn't lose money. So they recorded <laughs> that zero. So uh, I think that there are some companies like that where there is a more feasible path to profitability, it will probably require some cost cutting. Uh, You see a company like Peloton that also went public uh, a couple years ago, and they recently put a freeze on new hiring as they're trying to get their costs under control. So I think that you will either have the companies where there's really no clear path to profitability kind of flame out. I think that you will have some get there through a lot of tough decisions and a lot of cost cutting. So I think that, uh, yes, I think that we it, it, it'll be kind of two diverging paths. We'll see these companies that just went public take.
0: Well, everyone, this has been such a fascinating conversation. I think we, we certainly didn't hit on all things retail, but we hit on some of the The most fascinating, interesting parts of it. And they all sort of ladder into what I personally will be looking into for the year to come. And a lot of that comes into business models, profitability, and what actually is um, going to stick. But Miley, Sakib, Ana, thank you so much for joining me this week.
2: Thanks. Thank Thank you. you.
0: And thank you for listening to this episode of the Modern Retail Podcast, a show by Digiday. If you haven't already, please do subscribe and send this podcast over to a friend who you know would enjoy it. See you next week. (laughs) Bye. <laughs>